It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Welcome to Bloomberg Law. I'm June Grosso. Ahead in this hour, the Supreme Court appears ready to restore South Carolina's Republican-drawn map. The star witness and former girlfriend takes the stand in the Sam Bankman-Fried trial. Trump is looking for a get-out-of-jail-free card, claiming absolute presidential immunity. And what is a legal hot tub? Prosecutors have built their criminal fraud case against Sam Bankman-Fried by tapping into his inner circle and reaching cooperation deals with three of his closest confidants. And one of them is undoubtedly the government's star witness, Caroline Ellison, the former CEO of Alameda Research and Sam Bankman-Fried's former girlfriend. She took the stand this week and testified that Bankman-Fried was the mastermind behind the scheme to use FTX customer funds for speculative, illegal trading at Alameda. Prosecutors played clips of the all-hands meeting days before Alameda filed for bankruptcy. And then with crypto being down, the crash, the like, credit crunch this year, uh, most of Alameda's loans got called and in order to like meet those loan recalls, um, we ended up like borrowing a bunch of funds on FTX, which led to FTX having a shortfall in user funds. In the tape obtained by Business Insider, Ellison admitted that she and Bankman-Fried knew Alameda was taking funds from customers on FTX without their permission. Did Alameda have the ability to touch user funds without getting approval from FTX each time? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think basically the structure was that like Alameda could like kind of go negative in coins without needing to actually borrow them on the spot margin. Joining me is Bloomberg legal reporter Chris Dolmesh, who's been covering the trial. Chris, tell us about Ellison's demeanor on the stand. So she was pretty calm. She didn't raise her voice really at all. She did get emotional near the end of her direct testimony when she started talking about the collapse of FTX and Alameda in November 2022, kind of recounting how she had been extremely stressed out and worrying before that and was just kind of relieved to be able to tell the truth about the whole situation. And they played some audio clips of the all-hands meeting that she held on November 9th after kind of it had been revealed that Alameda's balance sheet was kind of not accurate. And in that, she's nervously laughing, but she testified she really felt just relief at being able to tell the truth. She seems just as calm on that. It's very straightforward. Um, She really never raised her voice or got upset, except when she started to cry. Were there texts or notes or documents that they used to support her testimony? Yeah, so there were quite a few. She and SBF kind of communicated through the obvious ways that people communicate nowadays in business, like Slack, Signal, those sort of things. You know, they had auto-delete on their Signal messages, which she turned off in November as things started to get bad. But there were plenty of other documents. They kind of talked about their relationship through a Google Doc 
and discussed, you know, how she was uncomfortable with the relationship. And she said that that made her feel like an unequal partner. So, you know, a lot of these communications between them, even though they were in the same penthouse in the Bahamas, were going through electronic means, through chats and Signal and Google Docs. And they presented quite a few, you know, of her documents. She had one document she kept that's called Things That Sam Is Freaking Out About. And there was time spent on that. It's one of the things he felt that it would be a good thing that if there was an enforcement regulatory action against finance, because that would help FTX get more customers. The prosecutors seem to spend some time on, you know, Sam Bankman-Fried personally and his desire to shape his image. Sure, yeah. She said his image was pretty important to him. At one point, she said that he felt his hair was very important and that it was kind of a calling card and that it helped him get visibility. So at times when he wanted to use publicity to kind of improve their image or to improve the amount of publicity they got or get more customers, he did. And at times when he kind of wanted to downplay everything, he did that also, like switching from a luxury car to Toyota Corolla. From the prosecution's point of view, what was the most important part of her testimony? I think it was them getting her to say that while she was co-CEO and CEO at one point, she was still kind of taking orders from Sam. And she took orders from Sam throughout. She consulted him on nearly every decision that she made. And that, you know, while he was not always day-to-day involved in Alameda, he was the owner. He had control. And he would dip in from time to time, especially in May of 22, when things started to get intense and kind of direct trading strategies. There was testimony from another witness that he just kind of came in and said, well, we're not going to sell Japanese bonds and buy currency as a hedge. So um, he was clearly involved in the day to day. I would say the defense scored some points just kind of getting her to admit that he wasn't there every day, that he wasn't always hands on, that she was running the show, at least for part of the time. So she admitted that she altered documents, you know, she knew what she was doing was wrong, but kept Mm -hmm. saying that Sam Bankman-Fried directed it. Yeah, that's pretty much the narrative that she gave. She made it clear that, you know, sometimes she made decisions, you know, after consulting him and that those decisions were hers, but ultimately she said that Sam made most decisions. And one powerful part of her testimony, I would say, was when things started to go bad in the summer, there was one meeting that they had in the penthouse in the study where he basically blamed her and said that the reason that they were in the situation that they were in was because she hadn't hedged enough. And she said, yeah, I could have done more. There's definitely, I could have done more. She admitted she could have been a better leader and she could have pushed people to do more innovative things. But in the end, she said, this was Sam making the decision. And so on cross-examination, how much headway did the defense make? Were they able to poke holes in her testimony? A little bit. They had a tough time, mostly because there were a lot of objections from the prosecution. I mean, you could even characterize it as almost every time they started to ask a question, the the prosecution would object due to form or some other problem. So in the end, you know, during a full day on the stand, she started around 9.30 and ended around 3.30 or 4. Um, She only really spent three full hours on the stand. There were a few sidebars. There were debates about, you know, admissibility of some of these audio clips of the November 9th meeting. So while they made a little headway, like I said, in kind of driving a wedge between management of Alameda and Sam Bankman-Fried, it was definitely a slog for them. And how much uh, progress they made can only really be measured at, at the end of the trial. She's been billed as the star witness. Do you think her testimony lived up to that? 
I would say so. Gary Wong spent a similar amount of time on the stand. She's a key witness. Um, she was there for a lot of it. She was obviously his partner for a good amount of time. There's a lot of testimony as to you know their personal relationship. So she was certainly crucial. Thanks, Chris. That's Bloomberg legal reporter Chris Domesh. Joining me now to analyze the prosecution's case is former federal prosecutor Jordan Estes, a partner at Kramer Levin. It seems like the government here has an overwhelming amount of evidence against Bankman Freed. Witnesses who were in on the alleged fraud, code that was altered, balance sheets, texts, internal documents. As a defense attorney, how do you defend against that kind of a case? It's certainly very challenging in these circumstances. So one thing I think the defense is trying to do is create a record that this was actually a legitimate business. Nobody thought they were doing anything wrong. So they're going to try to do that through the cross-examination of the witnesses of the company. I do think it's a real challenge in a case where witnesses like Caroline Ellison seem to have fully embraced that the conduct was wrongful. So if you have a witness like that, they're really going to have to attack her credibility. But I do think from my read of her testimony, it was very overwhelming. It seemed very dramatic and compelling. So they're going to have to do a lot of work in discrediting her, which will be hard. I mean, she is the state's star witness. How much depends on the jury believing her? So I think in a cooperator case, the government really does need the jury to believe the cooperators. They need them to believe not necessarily every cooperator, but at least one of the principal ones, like Caroline Ellison, they're certainly going to have to believe her. But you can imagine the government has documents that support her testimony. Often, as the cooperator testifies, you then introduce exhibits that confirm what the cooperating witness is saying, or perhaps another witness from FTX who testifies later may say something that's consistent with Caroline Ellison's testimony. So there are a number of ways to try to get the jury to believe the witness, but that is ultimately, it's very critical to the case. The first four witnesses, one is his former girlfriend, another is one of his oldest friends, another an MIT friend. Does that help or hurt their credibility that they were friends who turned on him when things fell apart? The government's view is typically that that helps their credibility. These were the people who were closest to the defendant. They were inside the conspiracy, and they're the ones who can tell you every detail of what happened. If you have an outsider, it's easier to distance them from the defendant and suggest how would they actually know what he intended or what was really going on. But because they have people that were right on the inside, that worked side by side with him, that have admitted their guilt that's really tough for the defense. Was there anything about Caroline Ellison's testimony that that struck you? So I thought a lot of the anecdotes she provided are the kinds of things that really stick out to a juror. They may not be direct evidence of fraud, but they're dramatic moments, like when she said that he said there was a 5% chance that he would be president. I'm sure that's something that stands out and just I think raises questions about his judgment. But she seemed to have a lot of dramatic moments in her testimony, I think in particular, given their relationship. There's this added drama on top of what you have in a fraud case. So it's very good for the government in that when there is drama, when you have a complicated case, jurors can go to sleep if you're talking about code and (laughs) cryptocurrency and things like that. But when you have a witness who was 
in a romantic relationship, when there was this power dynamic, that's something that certainly captures the jury's attention and I think creates this extra element there that her boss and her former boyfriend is also asking her to commit fraud or committing fraud with her. It's an interesting power dynamic that I think will stand out to a jury. A lot more trial ahead. Thanks so much, Jordan. That's Jordan Estes of Kramer 11. Coming up next, a lower court threw out South Carolina's congressional map, but will the Supreme Court restore it? I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication, it's fortitude, and it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years, and it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank, member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. We have said that the burden that you're assuming of disentangling race uh, and politics in a situation like this is very, very difficult. The chief justice described the key problem in the case before the Supreme Court, how to determine whether South Carolina's congressional map was the result of racial gerrymandering, which is unconstitutional, or partisan gerrymandering, which has been okayed by the court. The court's conservative justices expressed skepticism about a lower court's decision, finding that Republican lawmakers had engaged in unconstitutional racial gerrymandering in drawing South Carolina's first congressional district. Here are Chief Justice John Roberts and Justice Samuel Alito. But we've never had a case where there's been no direct evidence, uh, no map, no strangely configured districts. 
very large amount of political evidence. Well, the clear error standard, if that's the standard that we are required to apply, is a very demanding standard. But it is not an impossible standard, and it doesn't mean that we simply rubber stamp findings by a district court. But the liberal justices suggested the lower court had enough evidence to conclude that South Carolina lawmakers improperly relied on race to get to their target of 17 percent black voters in the first district by moving 30,000 black voters out of the district. Here are Justices Elena Kagan and Sonia Sotomayor. Is this gerrymander based on politics or is it a way to get to an ultimate goal, an ultimate political goal, but the gerrymandering is based on race? And what the two of them do is that they show that black Democrats are excluded from District 1 at a far greater percentage um, uh, than white Democrats are. I think Cooper was petulantly clear that you don't need a smoking gun. And if you don't need a smoking gun, you don't need direct evidence. Joining me is elections law expert Richard Brafault, a professor at Columbia Law School. Rich, tell us about the issues in this case where the NAACP is challenging the South Carolina map. So this case is about a challenge to the redistricting of South Carolina's congressional plan in 2022 following the 2020 census. The major development affected District 1, which is basically around Charleston. And it made the district more Republican by moving out a significant number of black voters into an adjacent black majority district. District 1 had been a Republican district, but in recent years it had been more closely contested. And in 2018, the Democrats actually won it for one term. 2020, the Republicans won it back, but very narrowly. So one of the things the legislature did in 2022 was change the composition to make it more Republican. And in so doing, it basically moved about 30,000 black voters from Charleston out of the district into an adjacent district. By the way, District 1 is the district that elects Nancy Mace, who had been previously considered a moderate, but since her district was changed, seems to have become more conservative. So the question before the court, and it's a tough question, is whether the legislature was motivated by race or by party. You might say that in a state where race and party are so intertwined, that's an impossible question to answer because it's the same thing. But it's crucial because the Supreme Court has said that racial gerrymandering, that is to say the intentional movement of voters because of their race from one district into another, is unconstitutional. But partisan gerrymandering, as we all know since the Rucho decision in 2019, is not unconstitutional. It's non-justiciable. So it's okay for the state to engage in partisan gerrymandering. It's not okay for the state to engage in racial gerrymandering. South Carolina says it was both following traditional district lines, but also had a partisan political purpose. What the lower court found was that actually the movements of voters did exhibit racial predominance, that given the way the voters were moved, which voters were targeted, and relying on the testimony of experts, they basically said that a disproportionate number of black Democrats relative to white Democrats were the ones who were moved, and therefore the, the district court was able to conclude that this was a racial gerrymander. That's what's being tested in the Supreme Court right now. The three-judge federal panel referred to the revised map as effective bleaching of African-American voters out of the Charleston County portion of the district. And they came to that conclusion after an extensive eight-day trial featuring 42 witnesses and 652 exhibits. So doesn't the court usually defer to the factual findings of lower court judges? Yes. I mean, indeed, that is the standard. They're supposed to apply what's called the clearly erroneous standard, not just was the district court right on balance, but as long as what the district court did was plausible, 
long as they didn't do something which was clearly wrong as opposed to debatably wrong, they're supposed to defer. And you definitely heard the liberal justices emphasizing the importance of adhering to the clearly erroneous standard, that there was evidence to support what the district court found. And indeed, the United States had not been a party to the case originally, but the Solicitor General's office came into the United States and actually emphasized the importance of following the clearly erroneous standard. Chief Justice John Roberts said that the challengers of the map had no direct evidence that race had predominated in the decision-making process, just circumstantial evidence. This would be breaking new ground in our voting rights jurisprudence. Is that true? I mean, isn't circumstantial evidence enough? Right. They've often relied on circumstantial evidence. But he also said it was not an oddly shaped district. In a number of the early other cases in which the court has found racial gerrymandering, the district was oddly shaped. On this one, there was a big change in the district. People were moved around a lot, but the district itself didn't flunk any kind of test of odd shape, which is something the court has sometimes used. And the other issue that came up was the fact that the plaintiffs had not presented an alternative map. Basically, the question was, could the state have gotten its partisan goals without moving as many black voters around? And the question came up, should the plaintiffs have been required to present an alternative map showing that the state could have made the district just as Republican without moving as many black voters? And there was a debate in the court as to whether the plaintiffs had to do that. And the precedent is that they don't have to. And indeed, Justice Kagan was quite strong on that because she'd actually written the case that said that, a case called Cooper, about five years ago. But nonetheless, the other justices sort of came back and said, well, maybe you didn't have to, but why didn't you? Why wouldn't that have helped your case if you could have shown that they could obtain their partisan goals without using race quite as much? I mean, it really went into this difficulty of separating out race and party. In effect, the conservative justices were sort of creating, even though the prior case, Cooper had said there's no such requirement. You saw some of them basically suggesting either that there is or that there should be or that it's a problem when there isn't. So after the oral arguments, most legal experts concluded that the conservative majority is going to uphold the Republican-drawn map. What's your take on it? There was certainly a lot of negative questioning, even from some of the so-called more moderate conservative justices. Remember, the most recent case involving race and voting, Allen versus Milligan, went off 5-4 with two of the conservatives, Roberts and Kavanaugh, joining the liberals. Roberts was clearly pretty skeptical about the lower court's finding in this case. He seemed less likely. Kavanaugh's questions were a little bit harder to read. I mean, some of it was, again, about the evidence, but some of it also seemed to indicate that he was thinking about what's the burden on the defendants, in this case, to show that the district court was clearly wrong. It was certainly a tough argument for the NAACP defending the lower court's finding. I think if they have any chance, it's going to be to the extent that the court decides to rally around the idea that unless it's clearly erroneous, there should be deference to the lower court's finding. On the other hand, this is the court's first sort of race party intertwined case since Rucho four years ago when the court said that partisan gerrymandering is not unconstitutional, it's non-justiciable. So it's the first time that they will speak to the, how do you separate out race and party? And one could imagine they may want to shut down the idea that you could get around Rucho by reframing things around race. Now, the court in the past has said, even if there's a partisan factor, that the state can't use race as a proxy for party when it draws lines to favor a party. But one could imagine this is a case where the court might want to address how do you disentangle race and party in a world in which racial gerrymandering is unconstitutional, but partisan gerrymandering is not. 
It just doesn't seem like the NAACP has the numbers here to win, but you never know. Thanks so much, Rich. That's Professor Richard Profalt of Columbia Law School. Coming up next, Donald Trump says he's immune from prosecution in the federal trial over January 6th. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. And did you see today that deranged Jack Smith, he's the prosecutor, he's a deranged person, wants to take away my rights uh, under the First Amendment, wants to take away my right of speaking freely and openly. Donald Trump never seems to miss an opportunity to ridicule Jack Smith, the special counsel who's bringing charges against him in D.C. and Florida. The trial date in D.C. on charges of trying to overturn the 2020 election is less than five months away. But Trump is looking for a complete pass by arguing that he has absolute presidential immunity from criminal prosecution. And he's asking federal judge Tanya Chutkin to toss out the indictment. Here to discuss the issue which courts have never settled is former federal prosecutor Jessica Roth, a professor at Cardozo Law School. Jessica, tell us about Trump's claim of presidential immunity. So their argument is that Trump enjoys absolute presidential immunity from prosecution because he claims that the indictment brought by the special counsel related to January 6th is based on what they contend are his official acts while president. I would submit this is the most significant motion that Trump has filed to date in all of the cases that are pending against him and that the court's decisions on this motion could establish new law regarding whether a president is beyond the reach of the criminal law for acts taken while president, even after he leaves office. What do you make of his attorney's arguments? They make several levels of arguments. Are they convincing? Unlike some arguments we've seen from Trump's counsel in some of the cases brought against him, this motion is well-written, and it does present a very important issue of law, one that the courts will have to take seriously. No court has ever squarely decided the question of whether a president 
enjoys absolute immunity from prosecution at all because there's never been a precedent for criminal charges being filed against a former president. But there are two issues that the courts will have to address in ruling on the motion. The first is whether, in fact, presidents do enjoy absolute immunity from criminal prosecution for acts taken during the presidency. And if they find that there is such a thing as absolute immunity for president from criminal prosecution, then they would have to apply that doctrine of immunity to the facts presented in this case. If the court told that there is no absolute immunity for a president from prosecution, even after they leave office, then they don't necessarily have to address this second question of whether or not Trump's actions fall within the scope of such immunity. This motion was just filed last Thursday, so prosecutors haven't had time to respond. But what do you envision their argument will be against the claims of presidential immunity? I imagine what they're going to argue is, first, that the courts should not extend the doctrine, the judge-made doctrine of immunity for presidents, to the criminal context. And I think they have very good arguments. But secondarily, they will argue that even if the court were to find that in some cases a president could enjoy immunity from criminal prosecution for actions taken while president, that it would not apply to the conduct that is alleged in this case. Because if the courts were to follow the doctrine they've applied in the context of civil suits for damages brought against a former president, which asks whether or not the conduct in question falls within the outer perimeter of the president's official responsibility, the special counsel would argue that these actions do not fall within that outer perimeter. This is uncharted territory. What has the Supreme Court ruled in the past in the area of presidential immunity? So the Supreme Court has ruled on presidential immunity in the context of damages actions and civil suits. In the most important case is a case called Nixon versus Fitzgerald, in which the court said there is a doctrine of absolute presidential immunity that shields the president, even after he leaves office, from damages actions brought by individuals for actions taken within the outer perimeter of the president's official responsibilities. The court in that case drew on precedent those cases that recognized absolute immunity for prosecutors and judges said, essentially, if we don't adopt this doctrine, these individuals who perform these very public and important duties will be distracted and concerned as they perform their duties about the potential of being subject to innumerable suits. And so in Nixon versus Fitzgerald, the court said, essentially, we're going to adopt that reasoning, which applies with great force to the president of the United States, who, in addition, as to whom there is real separation of powers concerns, if the courts were to intrude upon the executive's ability to perform his functions as president. But the court, again, in Nixon versus Fitzgerald, talked about how those cases did not opine on the availability of criminal prosecution. And in fact, in Nixon versus Fitzgerald, the court was very clear to say, and it has said in subsequent cases on the question of absolute presidential immunity, that those cases are limited to the question of civil damages in civil suits brought by private parties. So I think there's a very strong argument to be made that the court would not extend that doctrine of immunity to criminal prosecution. What about the case of Trump v. Vance, where the Supreme Court ruled on the Manhattan DA's grand jury subpoena to Mazars, Trump's accounting firm? I think that's instructive as well, and that builds on this idea that the court sees a distinction between criminal cases 
including investigations and prosecutions and civil lawsuits. In the Trump v. Vance case, I mean, that involved a subpoena from a state grand jury seeking documents from Trump while he was president. And he asserted absolute immunity and said he shouldn't have to respond to that state grand jury subpoena. And the court said the public interest in criminal investigations is really paramount. It's a similar interest that the court talked about in United States versus Nixon, when President Nixon, as president, was ordered to comply with a subpoena from the grand jury working with the special prosecutor, Archibald Cox seeking evidence in the grand jury's investigation related to Watergate. So in both cases, the court has talked about essentially the paramount public interest in criminal prosecutions and investigations and how that is really quite distinct from the private interests involved in civil lawsuits against former presidents. So Trump is all about delay with these cases, and his lawyer said they'll try to take this to the Supreme Court if they lose at the D.C. Circuit. Rulings denying motions to dismiss an indictment normally wouldn't be appealable until after a verdict, right? But is this different? This is different, and that's one of the reasons why I think this motion is so significant, not just on the merits and for the new law that it could establish, but for the fact that the motion, because of its nature and the fact that I think it is going to be deemed immediately appealable, could derail the trial simply by going through the appellate process and the time it will take for the matter to be decided and how that may well go beyond the March 2024 trial date that's been established. We don't have the prosecution's brief yet, but does this seem like an uphill battle for Trump? I expect that the trial court and the D.C. Circuit will rule against Trump. But when it gets to the U.S. Supreme Court, and I do anticipate the Supreme Court would take this case, then it's a much harder outcome to predict. I think on the merits that the Supreme Court should rule against him, but it's hard to predict how this Supreme Court will rule. And if they get to the second question, which is whether or not these acts fall within the outer perimeter of the presidential functions and duties, then again, it's going to turn on how the court chooses to characterize the acts, what level of generality, and whether they look at them collectively and in context or essentially separate them out individually the way the former president has invited them to. I also think that there's sort of a larger context here. Decisions about recognizing immunity and to what extent do require courts to consider the consequences of ruling one way or the other. Here we have the former president who says that he should not be subject to prosecution in part because of the impact on future presidents and thinking about their ability to carry out their duties without being distracted by worries that they themselves would be hauled into court subsequently and charged. And he is saying on the campaign trail that if reelected, he would direct his attorney general to prosecute his political enemies, including now President Biden. And so I do think that part of the mix in the court evaluating the consequences of its ruling would be if they do rule that a former president can be subject to criminal prosecution while acts while president, will that mean that we would subsequently see future prosecutions of former presidents sort of ramp up in the way that we are seeing essentially an escalation in the threat of impeachment for presidents while in office? This presidential immunity claim presents so many issues. Thanks so much, Jessica. That's Professor Jessica Roth of Cardozo Law School. Coming up next, it's a hot tub, but it's a legal hot tub. Just what does that mean? I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. 
Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. Manifest 86. I don't understand how we back in time. I'm so scared. Must be some kind of hot tub time machine. We all know what hot tubs are. And we even know what hot tub time machines are from the movies. But what exactly is a legal hot tub? Well, it's not as exciting as it may sound, and it really has nothing to do with hot tubs. It's formally called concurrent expert testimony or a concurrent expert evidence proceeding, and it's like a discussion among experts. But it's not very popular in U.S. courts, at least so far. Here to tell us about it and how it got that name is Bloomberg Law Reporter Dan Papskin. So tell us exactly what this legal hot tub is, Dan. You can kind of think of it as a debate between experts, often economic experts, but not necessarily, where instead of one sitting on the stand in a trial or in a pretrial hearing and getting examined and then cross-examined by one side's attorneys and then the other, both or all of the witnesses sit together before the judge and are basically prompted to debate each other on a series of predetermined topics or questions. And where did they get the name Hot Tub for this? Australia. These originated pretty much right around the beginning of the decade, and it was deployed originally by the Australian Competition Tribunal, their kind of antitrust dedicated court system, basically to get a clearer understanding of what experts were talking about and make them really drill down on their agreements and their disagreements. Um, it was pretty successful there, They've, and it's taken off in a bunch of other countries, in Europe, in South Africa, Canada has used it. It's mostly been unpopular in the U.S. We've only found a little less than two dozen instances of federal judges using one. It hasn't, it hasn't taken off. Maybe the name has something to do with that. I know you witnessed one of these legal hot tubs when federal judge James Donato held one in San Francisco. So tell us about that. So Donato held this the second hot tub he's held in this case. This is a, a lawsuit alleging Google basically has anti-competitive control over the payment systems in his Play Store. Which, and so the second hot tub 
was to basically determine whether the plaintiff's experts had reached kind of valid models for figuring out how much consumers were harmed by these Play Store policies and what the impact was on the market. Is the judge the only one asking questions or are the lawyers asking questions? Is there crosstalk between the experts? There's a lot of crosstalk. It's almost exclusively Donato asking the questions. He allows a couple attorneys to sit with the experts in the hot tub, but they're really only allowed to ask questions right at the end if they have kind of clarifying questions for either expert. Otherwise, Donato prompts one side or the other. Um, We'll say like, yeah, I read your report. I had this question about this, you know, one part of the model. And then we'll prompt the other expert to be like, do you disagree with that? If so, why? It got pretty heated several times. There was, I don't know if you would call it yelling, but definitely raised voices. The court reporter had to interrupt I think three separate times because two experts and the judge were talking over each other and she you know, couldn't transcribe that in real time. So it definitely is a little more chaotic than your average courtroom testimony. Is this because the expert testimony is so complex for the judge to understand or is it because this is quicker? I mean, what's the real reason behind this? The reason Donato held the hot tub was to answer this Google motion over whether the experts should be allowed to testify or not. And Donato told me in an interview afterwards that it's very useful for him understanding their testimony and their models. It is really complicated, and that's a big reason why judges are deploying hot tubs, although they haven't deployed too many of them. But it's not just about the complexity. It's, it's also faster, Donato said. It's a lot cleaner. He compared normal expert testimony, non-hot tub testimony, to a game of telephone, right? You've got the expert on the stand. You've got their attorney questioning them. And then you've got the judge hearing their answers. So it's kind of filtered through what questions the attorney wants to ask and then how the economist in this case answers those questions. So the judge might not necessarily be getting the exact answers they're looking for. Well, we'll see if the use of these legal hot tubs picks up, but I think a name change is in order. Thanks so much, Dan. That's Bloomberg legal reporter Dan Paskin. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Wall Street time. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. Osage County, Oklahoma is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie is based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams-Hurd, the host of In Trust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast, In Trust, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.